Church History Matters, Episode 43. Grace and peace to you, brothers and sisters. Welcome to another episode of Church History Matters. My name is Joseph Knowles, and I will be joined momentarily by my co-host, Ruben Rosales, along with our special guest for this episode. It has been a little while since we've been with you, but we are glad to be back again, continuing our some number of part series on the rise of the papacy. So we'll get to that shortly. But before we do, we have This Week in Church History. The story for this episode dates back to 1692. It was late January of that year when a couple of young girls, 11 and 9 years old, Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Paris, who lived in Massachusetts, began to show signs of illness. Over the next several weeks, other girls within this community would appear to fall prey to similar afflictions. 1692 was a leap year, so it was that on February 29th, based on complaints from some of the men in the community, Two of the magistrates in the town of Salem, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, issued warrants to arrest three women, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tutiba, for afflicting several of these girls, allegedly by witchcraft. March 1st, the following day, the women were taken into custody and questioned by the two magistrates. And this, of course, was what led to eventually the infamous Salem witch trials of 1692. Now, it might not be fair, (laughs) or at least totally fair to call it a event in church history because so much was done by the civil authorities rather than by the church, but the church is there at least on the peripheries. And it was um, in Puritan New England where there was a lot of continuity between church and civil authority. So I think it's not entirely out of the realm of plausibility to to say it's an event in in church history. But in any event, that was February 29th and March 1st, 1692, 331 years ago this week in church history. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, on to our interview and part two of The Rise of the Papacy. We are pleased to welcome Jason Fight to the show today, and I'll ask Jason if he wouldn't mind just introducing himself to the audience, uh, who you are, what you do, and why it is that you think church history is important. Yeah, well, uh, glad to be on the show. I am a 2013 graduate of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I got a Master of Divinity in Church History. I'm a PhD student at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary, where I study church history, specifically Puritanism, in the century after uh, the English Reformation. And uh, I am, by day, a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy, been in the Navy 16 years now. So, um, yeah, that's who I am. All right. Um, That's great, and we are continuing our several parts, I guess, number to be determined series on the rise of the papacy. So this is going to be part two, and uh, I guess the last time we kind of kept it at a pretty high level. Yeah. Um, I mean, I tend to dive down in the weeds a little bit. (laughs) Um, That's just in my nature, I guess. Um, But we're, we're talking on this general topic of how did the Bishop of Rome, come to be... As it's viewed today. Right, yes, the Pope. 
Yeah. Cap- the with the capital the P. Yes. That's, that's what we're getting at. And uh, we finally were able to get together and record this episode, and we're really appreciative. Um, but the first question I think that is uh, relevant to discuss is, is how did, what are the big picture items that led to the papacy being viewed as it is today? Like, if you could give us as high a view as level as possible on on that so we can kind of dive down into the, the weeds a little bit on the minutia. Yeah, I mean, 2,000 years of history, 30,000 foot view. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is, you know, from the earliest traditions of the church, uh, Peter had uh, established the church in Rome. Um, it became very important in the early centuries of the church, this idea of apostolic succession. Apostolic succession was a way of guarding against heresy. Mm. Um, there were a lot of people coming around saying, we represent the true Christian tradition, whether it was Marcion or the Gnostics. Um, and one of the uh, kind of innovative ways that the early church came to combating that heresy is not only using scripture, which they used a lot, but they also used the, hey, all the apostles founded these churches, and none of the churches believe what you believe. Like, that proves that you're not Christian. Right. The Church of Rome also, especially in the first 700 years of the church, where we have some pretty big theological controversies between East and West. Uh, Rome always ended up on the right side. It was the only church that kind of had the undefeated record. Mm. So that helped. It was also the only major church in the West which had been um, kind of left to its own devices after the Eastern Empire, the Empire moved its capital to the East. Mm-hmm. Kind of the Pope was unchecked. The, the, the ecclesiastical authorities were unchecked in the West. Uh, and by the time you have the medieval period and the rise of nation states, you already have several centuries, many centuries, of the Pope being kind of the preeminent ruler in, in uh, Europe. Not only from a, a land perspective, he had... Even early on in the early medieval period, already owned a substantial amount of land Mm -hmm. thanks to donations from people, um, you know, rich people when they died, um, wanting to uh, further the use of the church. But also just because in the power vacuums that were left from the lack of nation state, uh, the Pope had gained a significant amount of secular power in, in addition to being, you know, the only kind of major bishop in the West. And really they developed that idea successive bishops throughout the uh, bishops of Rome throughout the medieval period built that into something incredibly grand, basically almost like an emperor of the world by the time you get to Innocent III, and spent the late medieval period really wrestling with secular authorities over who would be preeminent. Everyone acknowledged that the Pope was preeminent in a spiritual context, but a huge debate over whether they had any secular power at all, and if so, how great that was going to be, which finally kind of culminates in the Reformation. Uh, The Reformation is about a lot of things. I know as Protestants, we like to think it's just about justification by faith. It's not. There's a lot of politics involved. And really this idea of the Pope as a supreme kind of secular ruler, really even in the Catholic lands, can't survive the Reformation. So what you end up having is today, in my opinion, you have kind of the medieval spiritual authority of the Pope that Innocent III and his successors proclaimed Uh, But they're really devoid of any of the temporal power, which is evidenced by the fact that Catholic leader, Catholic political leaders around the world really don't listen to the Pope. Um, And so you kind of have the the, the Pope, if you looked at it, it's almost like a sine wave. You know, it started, it started kind of as nothing, right? It rose to preeminence and now it's come back down 
to where you know it's more than it was at the beginning, but it's less than where it was a thousand years ago. And I think it's really interesting to point out also and to consider that a lot of the times the church was trying to do what was right. And then, you know, I always would be pointed out that uh, Nestorius, right, was trying to prevent people from elevating Mary to a status of deity um, in proclaiming that, hey, we can't call her mother of God. But they took it as, oh, you're denying the divinity of Christ. And so it was like, oh, you know, it has, you know, from what I've read is not necessarily true of what Nestorius believed. Well, it's that's the, you know, the. <laughs> There's some people that make a career disproving everything we know about history, right? So there's there's a guy who he's famous for. He says all the the medieval battlefields aren't where you think they are. Uh, you know, there's the Calvin versus the Calvinists. But I think one of the things that we today, even even remarkably as Christian thinkers, uh, don't understand it are the theological implications of a thought. Right. Um, and so we would look at say something like Nestorianism and maybe not think in the, wouldn't have the initial thought that they would in the same way that we look at, we look at Zwingli and Luther and we say, guys, why can't you just, why can't you just shake hands on the Lord's supper? What we don't realize because we don't think in these contexts really is for them. It was, it was a Christological and, and it's, it's, it's not even really about Christ being in and above. Like the, what it's really about is Christ, right? In, in his humanity, can he be present? Yeah. Right? It's it's a Christological. So Vingley would say, you're splitting up, you're, mm. you're, you're attributing divine things to the human nature of Christ, which can't happen. Um, and so so for Luther and Zwingli, like that's why Luther, it wasn't just like, I disagree with Zwingli. It's Zwingli is not a Christian. Mm. And so in the same way, these guys also say like well, okay, we're like okay theotokos like you know big deal guys like right. we are fighting about a word for them these these aren't words like words have meaning they they live in this platonic uh you know world in which you know basically the highest ideal of something is it's is it's you know there's a version of dogginess or right. you know humanness that is perfected mm-hmm. um and so words have meaning to them and um the like the, the catholic church the 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 bishop of rome especially in the first to middle of the first millennium really was really was a warrior, a theological warrior, if nothing else. And of course, they introduced things that we would disagree with. But at the same time, like you're saying, with uh, kind of like with Nestorius, when you see guys like Leo the Great or Gregory the Great, these are guys that actually they see you know a problem in the church, not just of theology. They see a problem with the way bishops are governing. They see the ignorance of the people, and they introduce things that they think are going to help that situation. And then a few hundred years later, people build and build and build. And by the time you get to Innocent the Third, you know he's owning everything. One of the things growing up that I realized was uh, we were taught a lot of why of what to do. We weren't given the reason for for why we do it. And I think that's a trap that even Protestants can fall into and actually often do when you look at the, the Western church in America. You know, for example, we're going back to the Reformation and, and the church in Rome doing what they think is the best to try to preserve the word of God, right? So they didn't want the message to exist, right? And so that was part of the reason what motivated them, or at least this is what I was taught. You know, they were motivated to preserve the word of God by not allowing it to be translated for fear that it could turn into the message, right? 
So while we would say we disagree strongly with a lot of Roman Catholic traditions and teachings, I think there are some things that are good that they get right. And so that's something like I don't want anyone who's like sometimes my mom listens. She's Roman Catholic trying, I think, to come out of that. And I'm hoping I'm praying for that. But I don't want to give the perception that we're bashing the Church of Rome, which, you know, we'll. We'll do that on occasion, but <laughs> it's a that's not what we're doing it's right now. It's a Protestant pastime. What, yeah. I, what I would say is, what I would say is that first off, Catholicism has been around two thousand years, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so to think that you, you know, you find a lot of like these caged age Calvinists and stuff that you know, you think like twenty one years old, you started reading the Bible six months ago, you think you're going to TKO the Catholic Church? Like, that's that's absolute foolishness, right? Like, right. I mean, first off, if Calvin and Luther couldn't do it, you're not going to do it. First off. Um, they have very sophisticated arguments, right? And I think, you know, the the theologians, they, they believe what they believe. They believe it's true. And I think you're definitely right. Like some of the um, some of the best work still today that's written on the doctrine of God, Protestants don't write a lot on the doctrine of God. Catholics do, though. And, and the doctrine of God is really not something that us and Catholics, at least in the Protestant Reformed world, that right. we disagree on, right. right? So I would say like on the doctrine of God, Protestants can richly benefit from reading the work of Catholics, right? Where we get, obviously, for us, we get into issues of ecclesiology, but then again, as Protestants, we love to fight about that too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's not really the TKO it is uh, as well. And, you know, to say that basically, um, I think the pro- the standard kind of Protestant trope is, you know, we read the Bible and Catholics don't. Mm. That's, that's foolish. L- read the first thousand, in the first few hundred years of the church, the early church fathers, you know, produced over a million references to scripture. Right. Like, I mean, read medieval. If you're like me, I like the medieval period. You read medieval writings, you you do find some crazy stuff there. Um, but the thought that like they're simple and backwards is completely not true. Um, and the the idea that they didn't read their Bibles is also not true. The the difference. I don't really want to say different. Catholics are very upfront that they read scripture through a filter, and that right. filter is the history of the church. I would contend that Protestants also do that, mm-hmm. right? If you're, especially if you're like a 1689 guy or gal, right? If you're a confessional Protestant, you too approach the Scripture through a filter. You don't want to admit it, but it's true. Um, Catholics are very upfront. the The difference is we believe, we don't believe in progressive revelation, right? Like they think that God is, for the most part, you know, He has these these great and these glorious truths. But these applications of these truths can change throughout time based on context and location, whereas we in the in the at least in the Protestant Reformed tradition would say that's absolutely not right. right? So really, really, it's a it's a question of of not do we use filters, but what filter are you using? And that's really the disagreement between us and Catholics to the point that like you know some people like Luther, Luther would not have said that hey a Catholic's not a Christian, right? right? You'll meet a lot of Reformed Christians today. They'll say hey if you're if you're a Catholic, that you know you can't be a Christian. Luther in no way would have said that on the Lutheran side, and I don't even think Calvin probably would have said that. I think that they would, and I think today, I think we all probably, if you know Catholics, I know saved Catholics. I was a saved Catholic uh, before I left the Catholic Church. Um, so I think there are people over in the Catholic Church, even senior leaders over there, that love Jesus. They love the Word. They probably have a correct understanding of salvation. Um, but they're wrong in a bunch of other stuff too. Just like you know, my my Arminian brothers are wrong in a myriad of things, in my opinion. So, 
Um, a couple things. Well, one thing you said was interesting that um, we do a lot of times, I think, tend to think uh, that the arguments on some of these issues are not not very sophisticated. But if you actually dig in and look at them, oh, yeah, they actually are. And we did an episode, uh, a couple episodes back about the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that, I had to admit that was not something I had s- studied in very much depth. I just kind of knew, well, that's that's a Catholic thing and I'm, that can't be right. But then you look at it like, well, okay, it's not quite as simple as I had made it out in my mind to be. Now, ultimately, I don't come down where they do on that issue, but I can see how they got there. Yeah. And hopefully I can see at what point they went wrong or which, which point is the, the questionable argument. Um, so I thought that was a, uh, maybe one example of what you were go- talking about there. But um, then the other question was, we mentioned Innocent the Third a couple times, and especially the medieval period. So could you kind of situate him on the timeline of history, especially if folks are not I mean, most most listeners to this podcast probably have at least a general idea of when the medieval period is. Um, so, where would he be on the timeline? And then, would you say that um, he kind of represents the high water mark for papal authority in the secular realm, or did that kind of reach its apex closer to the time of the Reformation? What do you think? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So, I would define you know. Defining historical periods is always tricky. You're always going to find might find different ones. I like to stick to, and I think this is probably one of the more common ones. I would say roughly 500 AD to 1500 AD is the medieval period. Normally, it's broken up into three periods: early, middle, and late medieval period. Innocent the Third really comes at the beginning of the late medieval period. So Innocent the Third's in the 13th and into the 13th century. So in the beginning of the medieval period is really where you have the rise of the what we would start to see the preeminence of the Bishop of Rome. He's always he, even from the very early start, people always accorded Rome a special place. But like but the idea of the Pope being as first among equals is really kind of solidified in the beginning with Leo the Great. Gregory the Great really hits on it as well. And then you see a steady rise to this, especially you see the fall of the Western Empire in the West. Um, and so there's a huge power vacuum. There are no nation states like we would think of them today. And so the Pope is kind of like the dominant Christian leader in the West. By the time you get to Innocent III, you've, you've started to see the rise of nation states. Uh, you've seen the accumulation over hundreds of years of papal authority, not only in the secular realm, but in the religious realm as well. You know, we talked about these, you know, different heresies and whatnot and how Rome tended to be on the right side of these things. And so you really had a very slow kind of accumulation of power to where you get to Innocent III at the end of the 13th century, and that is absolutely the high mark of the papacy. It's the high mark in the sense of what he viewed about himself was almost true. Mm. And so what he viewed about himself is that basically... The Pope, you know, think of the sun and the moon. He used this analogy, right? But the the sun and the moon, right? They're both two powers in the heavens, right? But all of the moon's light comes from the sun, Mm. right? Like the the whole base of its power is this greater power. So instead of seeing two different spheres of influence, the early popes, uh, the early bishops of Rome who claimed preeminence, they did claim preeminence, but they also acknowledged the difference that there were two kingdoms, if you will, is the language we'd probably use, two kingdoms, the temporal and the spiritual. 
By the time you get to Innocent the Third, those those there is no distinction in his mind between those th- two things, and he was he was right in the sense of for the most part he did rule Western Europe. I mean, people did what he said: kings and emperors, clergy, bishops. Uh, he exerted an exceeding amount of temporal power in addition to spiritual power. The rest of the medieval period, the popes did not with with the solidification of nation states. You know, we I think we Protestants also like to think that Catholics um, just cower down anytime the Pope says something. These kings in Western Europe in the late medieval period were not those dudes for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, and so um, the rest of the late medieval period is really the papacy holding on to the claims of Innocent III without actually having the power. And all of it goes back to a late to a forgery in the medieval period known as the donation of Constantine. Uh, which was later proved by the humanist scholars, Lorenzo Valla, in the 15th century, that it was a fake. But the donation of Constantine basically said that Constantine gave Pope Sylvester all of the power and all of the land in the West, and the Pope basically leased it back to him. And um, no one really fought against the donation as fake, because they didn't know it was fake. They, they, what they argued about was the Pope's temporal power. By the time we get to the late medieval period, most of the kings and, and you know the Holy Roman Emperor, they don't have any time for the Pope meddling in their, in their affairs. Uh, some of them become quite belligerent with the Pope. You see popes that are, um, you know, Pope Boniface VIII uh, passed a Unum Sanctum, was his famous bull in 1302, claiming that, you know, you had to be subject to the Roman pontiff to be saved. Uh, and so what does the French king da, do? He basically sends in his dudes and they, they beat him up, right? So like these these Western guys are more emboldened and I guess less afraid of the papacy. And so by the time you get to Luther, again, they assert all of the things that Innocent would, a thir- would assert, but in reality, um, spiritual power and, and the power they have in the papal states, they still do have secular land holdings, but they just don't wield it like they did. So if I could summarize... Theonomy bad. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would say theonomy is. I. It's. Don't worry, he likes it's, to do this. It's not. It's. I'd say it's not biblically accurate. Um, it's not. It's not. Um, I'm a big believer in the two kingdoms. Yeah. Um, you know, God has ordained. So the idea came too that you know Augustine basically kind of made the argument that like yes, God created two kingdoms. But one kingdom, government, secular power, is a result of sin, right? And so it wasn't created because it was good. It was created because people are bad. And so instinctively, the spiritual power is higher than the other one. Now, we would say, well, of course, but the spiritual power is Christ. Again, we're like, ah, TKO, we got the Catholics. But again, that's not Catholic theology. Even the early popes also acknowledged that their authority came from Christ, right? right? Um, now, Innocent III got crazy and said that the Pope was higher than humans, like intrinsically higher uh, and lower than God, which is not in any way remotely accurate, obviously. Um, but for the most part, like, again, the, the papacy was always very clever. They said, hey, you want to follow the Bible? Matthew 16, Jesus says, you're Peter and on this rock I will build my church, right? And... and that you know the power of hell will not prevail against it, yeah. and um, he meant that for his successors for all of time. And really, it's not until the Reformation that you get strong pushback to that argument: mm-hmm. the Pope's power in the Church. No one really argues that until the Reformation. 
it's the secular power. They would come back and they would say, you know, the secular theorists would come back and say, well, it says be subject to all earthly authorities. And they would, the Pope would say, well, I am an earthly authority. And they're like, no, it, you know, Jesus told Peter to feed my sheep. This is how we're feeding him. And so you get to Innocent III. Innocent III is really clever. He doesn't always go out to like donation of Constantine and stuff. He says, well, God gave me as the supreme power in the, in the spiritual power in the church on earth to intervene anytime there's sin. Well, tell me any kind of government interaction where there's not sin, right? So it's a very, very clever argument. Well, of course, you know, in the United States of America, our government is always looking out for our best interests. So I don't know what you're talking about. No. But uh, so that's, I'm kidding. That's, it brings me to my next question, which is, at, at which point did the language vicar of Christ begin to be used and applied to the Bishop of Rome, meaning he's essentially Christ pictured on earth. I, I'm not, I don't know the date off the top of my head that they used it. What I will say as far as, as titles, so Gregory the Great, who was Pope in the 6th century, who's very important, he's kind of, by many people, considered kind of like the, f- the, the, the first founder of, of the papacy. And, and Gregory was motivated by an intense zeal to evangelize pagan peoples, um, to get Christians to understand the faith. So, but he also introduced things like purgatory and some other things. So Gregory's a very conflicted, you know, he's a hero and he's a zero in some ways. But Gregory actually had a spat with the bishop in Constantinople because the bishop used the title ecumenical bishop, basically saying that he he was the top bishop. When you use that term, that's kind of what it means. And Gregory actually said that, hey, first off, none of the five patriarchies, all right, so there were five big bishoprics in the church, one in the West, Rome, and then the other four were in the East, Alexandria and Constantinople, Antioch. He made the argument, hey, first off, none of us can make that claim to be the ecumenical. There are five of us. But if anyone had the claim, we've always had preeminence. And he he is the one that introduced that, and popes really like this one today in the 21st century, is servant of the servants of God. That is a, a common title you'll hear um, if you actually like watch, you know, papal television, I guess, and whatnot. Uh, it's, it's especially like with a Franciscan bishop or a, a Jesuit uh, pope, right? But the servant of the servants of, of Christ, he starts using that title. And again, one of the, it's, none of this stuff is, I would say at very few times do you actually see a, a complete sea change. All of it builds from time to time, from political situation to political situation, to where by the mid- medieval period, and again, I'm not sure on the date, the popes are not only saying like, hey, we have preeminence because we have the bishopric that was handed down to Peter. It's no, 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 I am Peter. For all intents and purposes, right? right while I am on earth in this office, I am Peter. I am God's mouthpiece. Well, yeah, I, I think um, well, I was going to ask about the, the schism, and we've, we've alluded to or mentioned, yeah, which one? The great one, the big one. Oh, okay, 1054. Uh, yeah, 1054, because we talked a little bit about that split between East and West, Rome and, and Constantinople, um, which today is Istanbul, for mm. those who are not aware. How much do you think that played into, like, as you see the Eastern Church move in its own direction, did that contribute at all to giving something more to the Pope that he didn't already have? I think, I'm not sure about that, because 
really, you know, the, the church split, um, unlike a lot of Protestant church splits today where we split over, I don't like the music or the paneling of the church, it was a split over theology for the most part. The filioque clause was a huge part of it. Uh, you know, there were political considerations as well. But what it really did, I think, is completely, the Pope had already, when the, when the emperor went east in the 4th century, and then you have the sacking of Rome in the 5th century, really the Pope is unchecked. Like And people kind of, in the East, they basically don't pay very much attention to the West. They're busy doing their own thing. By the time you get to 1054 and you have the split, there's kind of been like this kind of name game. Like, yeah, we're still like in the Roman Empire family. That's completely gone. By, the, by that point, it's, what emperor? We have no emperor. Like, uh, And by this point, they have the Holy Roman Emperor, right? You know, Charlemagne had established 200 years before that. So I'd say for the Pope's operations... Or for, or for the West's operations, it didn't really affect them too much. Uh, if anything, it probably, the East, I think, was always a headache for Rome. Uh, it was always either a fight over who was preeminent. It was a theological fight. The, the Eastern Church had a lot of theological controversies in the first millennium. I think at the end of the day, not having to deal with that allowed the Rome to focus a lot more on internal dissent, if you will, and heresy, vice, external. And... Really, that's when you start to see things, you know, like the rise of the Crusades. When the Crusades come, what's the th- first thing the Crusaders do? They don't sack Muslim cities. They sack Eastern Orthodox cities. You see, you know, the the persecution of heretics within the Western Empire. Not that those things didn't happen before, but again, you know, the Pope is at, at this point, by 1054, we're on the rise of papal power. You get rid of the troublesome cousin off to the east, uh, and you have a lot more time to focus on... You know, the, it's 1054 is the split. In 1075, you have the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor basically going to war over lay investiture. So, like, the Pope the Pope was too busy to deal with the East. Maybe somewhat a related question. And for this one, you can feel, feel free to say, I'm not going to speculate on that. But there's, I mean, there's been talk. Of, I mean, it, all, it seems to, like, crop up on a regular basis about talks between Rome and, and Constantinople of, Hey, we can we can move toward getting back together, but it seems to me that the, both of the the heads of those churches have staked out positions as it regards authority within the church, especially with you know looking at the Pope, where it would be aside from the let's say they they uh, are able to resolve all of their outstanding theological issues, which of course is probably a pipe dream to begin with, but it seems like that one in particular, might still be hanging out there and could be a, a bigger hurdle to get over than some of the other stuff. What Do you have any thoughts on that? And like I said, if you don't want to guess, that's fine too. Um, I think, I mean, I think that, you know, now that we're living in the time we live and, you know, boundary lines being what they are, I think there's definitely more room for interaction. And to be fair, they've been interacting. Mm-hmm. Protestants don't know this because we don't pay attention in the same way that Eastern Orthodox don't pay attention to Protestants. They've been talking for several hundred years at this point, um, and there's been engagement. What I would say is everything I know about Eastern Orthodox is those dudes play for keeps. Like they, when it comes to their theology, when it comes especially to their their manner of worship, like these guys, you know, it's no holds barred. Like they are, they're not going to give you any ground. One of the Eastern Orthodox basically prizes itself, or Eastern Orthodox Orthodoxism, I guess. Uh, uh, 
it's very proud of the fact that basically they don't view that they've had any theological change since Second Nicaea. Catholicism has gone the complete other way. Catholicism will tell you we, we, we roll with the punches, we adapt. And ultimately, someone would have to give up a core tenet, which I don't think they're going to give up. The Catholic Catechism, you know, there are three bonds of unity in the Catholic Church, right? You know, confessing the faith, the sacraments, and apostolic succession, which has its pinnacle at the Pope. I don't think Rome will ever give that. That's It is, at this point, what makes Rome Rome. And unless you're willing to bend the knee on that, I think you can be, you, you, everyone can be friends and they can skip down the road, but they're not going to be the same church. Yeah, so that, that kind of reminds me of the reason why church history is important. Because Joseph and I, let's say grew up, because you were a Christian before me, but you know, the, one of the churches that we were first a part of seemed to have a very big fear of diving into the weeds of church history and the, the, the faith, the theological aspects of it. And that kind of led to this point where you, you could ask Protestants, you know, well, what makes you different than a Roman Catholic, right? And depending on how their preacher or their pastor is, they'll either say, oh, well, we don't pray to saints or Mary. That would probably be about the end of the conversation. Yes. So... It's just, it's, it's, as you said, though, their arguments, a lot of the things that happen in church history really do matter, and they help grow us in the faith. They give us a greater picture of discernment. They help us to understand the importance of our words and how they shape our worship, ultimately. I also, too, like church history-wise, we like, I think as Protestants, like nothing happened before the Reformation. Mm-hmm. It was like the New Testament closed, and then all of a sudden there was Martin Luther. There was a thousand, 1,500 years of badness. But you know, Calvin made the argument, Calvin said, the fathers are ours. Mm-hmm. Like the early the early reformers loved not only, not only the patristic fathers, but they loved a lot of the medieval fathers. You will find Bernard of Clairvaux, I can't even tell you how many times John Calvin quotes him in the Institutes. Um, he loved Bernard of Clairvaux. I mean, uh, you know, so, and, uh, you know, we do at my church, I host a, once a month, we do a theological society where every month we do a different, we'll do a patristic book one month, then we'll do a medieval book one month, reformation book, post-reformation, then we'll start all over again. And one of the reasons I do that is to, you know, it's not hard to convince reformed people to read Calvin. It's right. especially not hard to get them to read the Puritans. Yeah. For them. Well, it's hard to get them to read it all sometimes, but <laughs> but to at least feign interest right. in reading, right? right? It's a lot harder to say, let's read Anselm of Canterbury, right? Mm. right? It's a lot harder to say, let's read Athanasius. But I'll tell you, when once they do and they talk about it, they're like, this is amazing. Like, where, where's this book been? Like, we just read Irenaeus of Lyon, um, and my best friend, Will, who you guys know, uh, Will... That book changed his life. Mm. And it's, you know, 98 pages written in the second century. Catholics are a lot more in tune with their history. But again, like, people in the pew are people in the pews. It doesn't matter if it's the Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox, Baptist, Methodist. People in the pews in general, um, you know, the level of knowledge is not generally high in church history. And so it's one of the things that I think is incumbent on other people in the church is to try and, you know, tell people like, hey... You know, in the old kind of Southern Baptist tradition, there's the, the what's it called, the Trail of Blood. Oh, yes, yeah, which is historically completely inaccurate. Right. Basically, like, oh, they were Baptists the entire time. Right. Not accurate. <laughs> um, but church history can be a powerful tool on when we read the Bible. Again, mm. all, I drive by churches and they, you know, appealing to 
you know, conservative evangelical types, they'll have a billboard that basically says, you know, we preach the Bible, only the Bible. And the truth is, no one in the West comes to the Bible without some hermeneutic. That They might not know what it is, they might not know the filter that it is, but no one comes as a blank slate. And I think it's helpful for, and then I think what ends up happening is, like in the Reformed world, you Reformed people love to fight with each other, and what they end up fighting about is not actually the Bible. They, they, they end up fighting about their confessions interpretation of what the Bible says. So I, I find, I love confessionalism, but also I find it frustrating because the reformers were all about the needs for, like confessions can change because they're not the Bible. But a lot of modern day guys are like, well, it's in the 1689, so it can't change. It's like, dude, like the Puritans would tell you that if you think 300 years from now, we got everything 100% right, then you're probably not reading the Bible well enough. Because they didn't think that their dads got it right or their grandfathers got it right. And so in confessionalism, we we like history to a point and then we freeze it. And we say that, you know, our 12th grade grandparents' interpretation of scripture is the only one now that we can use um, without taking the, the first principles that they used. And that, that was the thing about the reformers is we get to come to the Bible. Like we get to come here, God. And unfortunately today, we think we're doing that. But we're not honest with ourselves at what we're bringing to the table when we do that. And so what it does is it leads us to not, when we get to a text maybe in the scripture that kind of doesn't really jive with our confession, and trying to actually really wrestle with it and work it out, uh, I think a lot of people just skip it. Or if they don't skip it, they'll find less than creative ways, in my opinion, to justify it. Uh, And we're also not happy with mystery. One Mm. thing that I would say Catholicism is very good at um, is they're totally comfortable with mystery. Like, hey, if, if God didn't tell us, like, punt to providence kind of. Um, and we say that, but we, especially us Calvinist man, we, we want to know, like, boom, A, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, dude. Like, don't even introduce anything else into the equation. Yeah, that's a very good point, uh, brother. And it, I think that having children, children seem to really find those places where there isn't a really black or white answer. Yeah. And they're very good at pointing those things out. So, uh, well, you know, well, you know, if, if Jesus is God, then how come this, right? And so it's like, wow, wow, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, we'll say, well, here's what the Bible says and here's what else it says. And and this is what we confess, you know, and it's, it's tough, but yeah, the mind is really an interesting, interesting place. Um, you have a no, no. Okay. Um, I was going to ask, uh, you had mentioned a couple of times the um, apostolic succession of the, the popes and of, of Peter uh, specifically. How accurate, because I believe at one point there were three popes. Mm. So how accurate is this and how did all of those, those moments where there was conflict get Resolve. You know, so they kept, um, and in the very, in the patristic period, we see, I think it was Ignatius, started keeping exact records of who the bishops were in each church. Mm-hmm. Ignatius was close enough to the time, he's, you know, less than 200 years removed from Christ, to where that's a thing that can, you know, you, most people, you ask them who their great, great grandfather is, and they don't know. But you ask them their grandfather, and like, yeah, my grandfather was, was Jim. So that became like the key, the key to um, the power in the church was apostolic succession. So uh, I think the records, especially when it comes to the papacy, are, are, are pretty, pretty good. What you end up hap- have happening 
which is a fascinating tale. Um, studying the, the papacy is fun. Like it's a it's an inter- It's not a boring read. The cadaver synod alone is amazing. But the um, basically what you have end up happening is in the th- early 1300s, the French king was kind of the dominant ruler in Western Europe. And he managed to get the papacy to move to Avignon, which is in southern France. And they stayed there for 70 years. Created all kinds of consternation. In the 1370s, a new pope was elected. He moved the church back to Rome. Shortly after he moved to Rome, he died. The Romans were like, finally, the papacy's back here. We want a Roman bishop. So the College of Cardinals got together. There were 16 of them. 11 of them were French. Um, and the people were like, give us an Italian, give us an Italian, give us an Italian. So they elected an Italian, Clement the something or another. No, 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 Urban, Urban the Fourth, I think. So if, so this was like in April of, I think, 1378, maybe. September comes around, and all the French cardinals get back together, and they're like, well, we didn't really want that guy. We kind of felt pressured, like we would get hurt by the Roman crowd if we didn't vote for him. And so then they vote for a French guy to be Pope. And he goes back to Avignon. And so now you have a really unique situation. You have two popes that are elected by the majority of the same college of cardinals. Right? And that's that's where it gets tricky, right? Because before, it's one thing if it's like, hey, some bishops break away and we're going to vote. These are the same dudes that, according to canon law, elect the pope. The same guys. And so what you end up having is 30 years of one saying, I'm the real pope. The other saying... I'm not. Basically, the French allies are for the Avignon dude. Uh, the non-French, like the Holy Roman Empire, England, they're for the Roman guy. Uh, and then finally, people are like, this is ridiculous. This is an embarrassment. They call a council in Pisa in 1409. They say, no, both of them are deposed. Let's uh, Cardinals made up of both of those dudes. Uh, they come together in Pisa and they say, we'll make this third guy pope. Well, the other two guys say that's not legitimate. So now you have three popes. And it's just, it's it's ridiculous at this point. And so finally you get to the Council of Constance in 1415 where people say enough is enough. They get the cardinals together. They depose one pope. The other pope abdicates. The other pope, I think, died. And then they elect, I think it's a Martin V, I think is who they elect. So, yeah, for, so from the period from 1378 to 1417, I think, you have... Majority of the time, two popes, but for a solid eight years there, you have three popes. When it comes back, you have the same apostolic succession is not really violated because all of these guys come from the same kind of chunk of... And I I can't remember, but I I feel pretty comfortable speculating. I think I remember reading that they basically worked out a deal where... You know, the majority of the followers of all those guys, you know, still basically kept their their positions, right? It wasn't like, okay, all of the bishops... Because then you're in a real problem. If none of the bishops then are legitimate, then, you know, how can we even elect a, elect a pope? So I, I think it was kind of one of those power plays, too, where it's all right. The, the top guy's got to go, but the followers beneath, you know, everyone kind of gets their place in the church. So you would think... You, I, at least for me, I'm looking at it and I'm like, wow, you guys kind of boondoggled that up real good. Uh, you know, so how do we, how do we, how do you know which one was the, the proper preeminent one? And So, so the, the Catholic Church today maintains that the legitimate line was the original one that was elected. So the okay. Roman, so Urban, Urban the Fourth, that line, if you look at, you know, if you had a 
Pope.com. It's not Pope.com. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like Vatican.va right. or something yeah. like that. But if you look at the official Vatican list of popes, stretching all the way back to Peter, the line you'll find is the original. Because their line was like, hey, you didn't like who you elected. Well, you did elect them. They were legitimately elected. That is the legitimate line. So, uh, yeah, they, I mean, but it's, 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 a, it helped lead to the rise, not the rise, because it was already happening, but kind of a, a century in which this ant, I don't want to say anti-papal, but check to papal power was in place, even with conservative members of the church. It was called conciliarism. The idea that church councils made up of the, you know, called by the Pope and made up of the bishops of the church, that's kind of the supreme power in the church. You know, that's where real theological decisions should be made. When we have a problem in the church, that the Pope should call a council, and the council is really where um, the nitty-gritty work of the church happens. It had been a movement for a while, but, you know, a lot of the conservative members that that advocated for it weren't really willing to kind of buck the papacy. Uh, by the time we get to a Council of Constance, um, they're like, all right, this is ridiculous. We've got to do something. And then you see for about 50 years, the conciliarists kind of really dominate, kind of put the pope in a little bit of a chokehold until the you get to the end of the 15th century and the pope kind of puts conciliarism back in its box. Uh, if you will. So uh, you had also mentioned uh, the celibacy of the of the priests. I guess, and this is kind of an aside for me because I'm curious how they justify that as a requirement for all of of the Roman Church when Bible doesn't command it. Yeah, well, I think it's unbiblical in the sense of I mean. We know clearly from Scripture that Peter had a wife, right? right. So the ver- first pope. Yeah. Uh, so I think it becomes problematic. P- clerical celibacy was really, like I said, the, the Catholic Church is, you know, people think that they're static and it's always the same. They're never changing. They're exceedingly willing to change. It's it's part of the reasons why they're, where they're here 2,000 years later, right? I mean, it's they're very good at integrating new things into the body of the church. What I would say is... Clerical celibacy was you had the problem of what happens when a priest has a son, right, and the priest dies, right? Priests want to take care of their kids. They're just like any other fathers in any other times. So then you get into problems of inheritance because churches um, in the early, in the first millennium of the Christian church, the secular rulers had a lot of power in who were priests and who were bishops. Uh, which is what led to the investiture controversy in 1075. And so what ends up happening is you have a guy that becomes a priest. Uh, He's invested with a particular parcel of land and whatnot. Uh, He has a wife and he has kids. He wants to leave some of that land to the kids. So then you have the power of, okay, who owns the church land, the church or this guy? And then who are you beholden to, right? Like if you are receiving your power to be priest and you get this land from the king, then that's the guy that feeds you. You're going to do what daddy tells you. You know, the guy in Rome who says he's your daddy, you're not going to really listen to. So clerical celibacy was was initially very much an attempt to uh, protect, if you will, the integrity of the church, not only the land holdings and the material of the church, but also to protect the church from secular influence. The church, you know, it's funny, the church as it grows through the medieval period is all about asserting its dominance in the secular world, but it would not tolerate any kind of intrusion of the secular world into the spiritual. And um, clerical celibacy was an attempt, 
somewhat successful. Uh, they had ways around it. But, I mean, it was a way to preserve the church's both temporal and secular, or sorry, its secular and its spiritual authority. You made me think of, um, and I don't remember the name of the book, but I remember it's by Mario Puzo, who's the author of The Godfather. But he wrote a book about, it's one of the Borgia popes, maybe Alexander. Sixth. Yeah. And about his children. Yeah. And they were just running wild, pretty much. And it was a huge problem. I'm going to say, I think, now that's all I remember about it. I don't remember all the details. And I'm sure it's, he probably played a little fast and loose with some of the facts to make a more interesting novel. And I think somebody else finished it. But that maybe is one example of the kind of thing you're talking about. Like, we, we definitely want to avoid what those Borgia guys did because that was just an awful mess. Having a... You know, a guy as Pope who has these children who are just all over the place. Yeah, that uh, again, it goes back to what I was saying before that there's there a lot of the times, a lot of the policies that were implemented by the church in Rome were they had good reason to try to do those things. Like they weren't, it wasn't a nefarious like, hey, we want to impose our specific will on everybody. It was, hey, this we see this is wrong and we want to try to fix it. How can we fix it? Yeah, the interesting thing, though, you bring up Alexander VI, so uh, his real name was Rodrigo Borgia. Mm-hmm. Um, the na- Machiavelli's prince is written to uh, Cesare Borgia, his son, and a lot of popes actually, more than you would probably think, had children. R- Rodrigo Borgia, Alexander VI, was unique in that he was very open about admitting that these were his kids, right? Um, and he gave them preferment as well. Like... It wasn't by the high by the by the late medieval period. This was not a surprise to anyone. But I mean, he there was no shame in his game whatsoever uh, in the way he played. And he kind of, I would say that Alexander the sixth, and then I think he's followed by Julius the second. They're kind of the last. How do I say? They're really the last big secular ruling popes. Uh, the papal states exist for another several hundred years after this. But they probably exert more influence, more absolute rule, I would say, secularly uh, than any of the popes that have followed them since that time period. This one's a little bit more on the theological side. And I believe when we talked about the Mass and the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper, there's a lot, there's a lot that's going on there with, I think the church would proclaim it a mystery of what's happening in the Mass and the role that the priest plays. And also, you know, when you look at the hierarchical polity of the Roman church, you see that there's a um, title placed upon the pap- the papacy of, of being the head of the church. And when you look at that, like it's not hard to consider getting there when you start off with what the priest is doing during the the liturgy in the mass. Could you could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, well, <clears throat> so the idea of, for those that are not familiar, right, transubstantiation, the idea that the body, that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ, that's actually adopted officially as doctrine at the Fourth Lateran Council in the time of, uh, of uh, our boy Innocent III, actually. So it's actually interesting, in the early first five, six centuries of the church, the the um, sacrament that was most um, revered was not the Eucharist. It was baptism. Oh. Baptism was the big 
um, sacrament in the early church, so much so that you had to be a catechumen for three years, at which time you would be baptized. They did baptisms once a year. They did them on Easter. They would split up men and women. You'd get baptized naked. Like baptism was a huge, huge thing. And you start to see in the second half of the first millennium, the rise of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But there is no consensus on on the idea of what we would now, they wouldn't use this term, but transubstantiation. In fact, there's a huge, the biggest theological debate of the ninth century in the Catholic Church is over this issue. You have two guys, Pascasius Redbertus and another guy, Retramnus of Corbeil, and they're arguing over, they both write the same title of a book called On the Body and Blood of Christ, in which uh, Pascasius Redbertus is arguing what would eventually become the kind of transubstantiationist view, but Retramnus of Corbet, very much a reformed, our what we would call a reformed memorial, you know, not quite memorialist view in Zwingli, but much more kind of a real presence view. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the reformers are going to pull Retramnus out of hiding 700 years later when they start having their fights over the Lord's Supper. So, and and in the ninth century, it wasn't like it was just Retramnus versus Redbertus. They actually had many followers on both sides. Uh, Retramnus had Flavius of Lyon, I think. He had um, Gottschalk of Orbay, who wrote the first volume on the limited atonement. Um, so you actually had both of these guys fighting pretty hard. Uh, unfortunately for Retramnus, uh, Redbertus, the, the transubstantiationist view, uh, had the backing of Hinkmar of Reims, who was a Catholic bishop who was powerful, that kind of really, really kind of put the hurting on Retramnus. But yeah, so like, even by, even by the time we get to the Fourth Lateran Council, not everyone is on board with the idea of transubstantiation. And it's it's really an appropriation to, like, you know, of Aristotle. It uses words like accidents and whatnot, but it uses them in ways that are different than Aristotle would use them. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, by, by the time we're in the, the high middle uh, medieval period is finally when we get to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper being transubstantiation and headship matters because only this apostolic succession received the power from God to actually perform this miracle. And to them, it is a miracle that they're able to do this. It's not because they intrinsically have that power. They receive that power by virtue of their office and their office only has power if it legitimately descends from Christ. Interesting. So I have here the... uh an adult catechism for uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it describes the work of priest as the work of Christ, teaching, sanctifying, and ministering to the members of the mystical body of Christ. It says some priests are in monastic orders, living life, doing work, which is special uh, to the order and to the congregation which they belong. Most priests are working in parishes as pastors or as associates of a pastor. The unique function of all priests is to offer mass and to pray the liturgy of the hours. These functions they perform officially in the name of the whole church. So just this idea of them being Christ represented to the church in which they in which they lead. Right, that's when you when you extrapolate that to the the Pope as as being the head of the church, the the preeminent one, as they call him, the Holy Father. What are the implications of accepting that title, if any? Yeah, I think you always have to argue too between um, 
what is taught, the rule of prayer and the rule of faith, right? So if you if you re, ever read Yaroslav Pelikan's wonderful five volume doctrine um, of the church, he makes this point basically that throughout church history we see a battle going on between the rule of faith and the rule of prayer. The rule of faith is what we teach. The rule of prayer is what people actually believe and what they do. And one thing on a theological side, we I mean I think we clearly can say that hey the head of the church is Christ like you can't in my in my view you can't say well Christ is the head of the church but on earth I'm the head like there's there's one head there's one head or there's no uh, there's there's not multiple heads so I think it's a it's an appropriation that is not helpful also being a Baptist I have a much different view of the church right for me the church is and for all of us I'd say the church is the body of you know the saints. In the Catholic Church, that is not the church. The church is the magisterium. It is the apostolic successors. They are the bond of unity of the church. For us, we would say the, that is not our unity, right? Our unity is being one in the Holy Spirit um, by having been saved by Christ. What I would say, though, in a practical level, is a lot of Protestants do this, right? A oh, lot yes. of a lot of people yes. view their pastor wrongly. As the voice of God. And so what ends up happening is you have these instances where, whether it's pastoral abuse or some other things like this, right? What happens when a man of God denigrates you, abuses you, right? You don't see it as like, oh, he's just a pastor. Like, regardless of what we teach, right? That this guy is someone that the people have called because maybe he's got a special gift. But, you know, he's no better than any of us intrinsically. Like, that's not what, how a five-year-old views it. That's not how a 10-year-old views it. Like when a when the guy that's standing up there that says, thus saith the Lord, that's like God saying it to you in their mind. And whether that's right or wrong, that's how people approach it, right? And so I would say on a, on a practical way, we, we in the Reformed Protestant world, we teach a very, I would say, biblical model of what humanity is and who the head of our church is. But if we actually got down into the psychology of it, I would say that it's not much different, mm. right? In fact, I we like to focus on the papacy. I don't think most Catholics, and I say this having been a Catholic, they don't really think about the Pope very much. Just like us, they look, they view the guy that's standing in front of them every week. That's the that's the real vicar of Christ to them right. is the priest that they see every week. Maybe the bishop. But most Catholics, they can't even name their bishop. They can't. They can definitely not name whoever their archbishop is. Most of them, um, because that's not important to their daily life, right? And the Pope, like, yeah, maybe they got a picture of him on the wall. Maybe they go to the Vatican once in their life, you know, like as a little bit of a pilgrimage. But day to day, just Catholics aren't talking about the Pope. And I think as as Protestants, who again, especially if we're confessional and we love our sixteen eighty nine confessions and stuff, you know. We love just going like toe-to-toe against the Pope all day, every day. The Antichrist is, you know, how he's put in most of the Protestant Reformed um, confessions. And they just, they, they don't really think about him very much. Yeah. Because why? He's not, uh, he's not an active influence in their life. Yeah, it's actually um, one of the things that I would, uh, I noticed as an adult, being a Catholic still as an adult. It was different as a, as a child, but as I became adult, an adult, I remember interacting with a a deacon, an ordained deacon at a Roman Catholic church. He's passed now, so pray that he had trusted in Christ. But um, he told me I was in a relationship with his daughter, and he at, I went to church with him once, and he asked me, hey, are you going to go up? And I said, no, I'm not going to go up for communion because uh, I, I'm kind of living in sin right now. And he's like, oh, the, the Lord knows your heart. 
I was like, what? What do you mean? Like, how can you say that? You're an ordained deacon. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say, oh, you've got to go to confession. You've got to be, you got to confess your mortal sins. You've got to, you know, receive absolution from the priest, you know. But that kind of showed me that there, there really is, when in the life of typical Catholics, you know, the same as in the Protestant church, they just aren't thinking about anything. But, you know, that's contrary to what you were saying, but in line with what you were saying, and to your point, I think it's extremely damaging for someone to view a human that is only human uh, as that heightened level of that title, Vicar of Christ, or the mouthpiece of God, or even though I would say that the pastor is actually, you know, when he's rightly interpreting scripture, proclaiming the word of God, that no problem there. Um, but to have someone who receives the title, I think is something where people should be wary of and be very, very cautious because the psychological implications that that can have on people is detrimental to say the least. I mean, it can, it can really destroy people. Like you said, you mentioned children. I'm thinking of adults who think of, oh, this person is the vicar of Christ to me, right? And so when you get into that adult stage in life and you see that person do something horrible, you know, it's just, it's, and that's, and that's all church roles, not just Roman Catholics, but you see it in yeah. the, in the, in the Protestant church as well. Yeah. I mean, we, we obviously like, look. If I thought the Catholics were right on everything, I'd be Catholic, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm a Reformed Christian. And so, obviously, I don't believe any of those terms that they apply where basically they are almost in Christ's place is an accurate one. What I would say is the popes today, especially the, the current pope, Pope Francis, they don't leverage their, you know, 150 years ago, they would still be like, I'm the pope, I'm the pope, I'm the pope. They're much more... I don't know them as people, but outwardly, much more. There's much more humility involved, right? Francis, he won't even live in the papal palace. He lives in the dorms with like just regular priests. Um, these guys are not, for the most part, um, living the kingly life that they're medieval. And even though they could, like, I mean, they are the head of state of a state. They have a palace. Like he could, he could live that life if he wants to, and they don't. You know, so um, I think. Like Pope Francis. I don't think like Pope Francis is an affair. I think a lot of people, uh, Reformed Christians, we think of like, oh man, as the Pope, he's Antichrist, that he's just sitting up there waiting to, you know, just destroy everyone's lives and stuff. I don't think that at all. I think Francis legitimately believes in his very liberal interpretation of Catholic theology. I think he loves people. I think he wants to help people. And all those things are, are good and glorious. He's just wrong on a lot of theology. A lot of his bishops think he's wrong on a lot of theology. So, you know, and the, the Catholic Church, too, has had to adapt in the last 20 years. You know, when we were really little kids, you know, it was still before, you know, the whole priest abuse scandal, uh, which turned into, you know, systematic covering up by the church hierarchy because the church hierarchy allows that. But then what we've seen is in Protestantism, it's, it's happened as well, right? Even in, this, in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, of which, you know, I come out of, you know, very troubling reports of basically people have an innate sinful tendency to protect people in authority, especially people in some form of spiritual authority. And, um, you know, for a long time, the Protestants just pointed at the Catholics and said, like, you know, your whole system is corrupt and this proves you're corrupt. 
what do we have to say now, right? Like that's uh, that's an important question we have to ask ourselves. And the Catholic Church is run by sinners in the same way that every church is. Every elder board, every deacon committee, whatever, is run by sinners uh, because none of us is Christ right. and the Pope is not Christ. Correct. And uh, thankfully the Pope does go to confession. So <laughs> Yeah, so that's... Uh, so to summarize, uh, theonomy bad, yeah. Presbyterianism bad. Uh, <laughs> Your words. <laughs> I'm just Baptist. kidding. I'm but just kidding. Baptist. Yeah. No, but uh, I, I think that's absolutely right, brother, and, and very, very true. And I appreciate you taking the time to say that. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a, a great spot to wrap up. And we certainly appreciate your taking some time out of your day to talk to us. Um, we did want to give you a chance if you had any Final words, final thoughts, encouragements, that kind of thing for the listeners. Well, yeah, as a church history uh, podcast I, and as a church historian myself, um, I think at the end of the day, no one's going to get anywhere. If, if you are concerned about, say, your Catholic friend's salvation, you're not going to get anywhere pulling some sound bites from Calvin or Luther and posting them on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok, wherever the kids are meeting these days. That's not, <laughs> that's not going to work. It's not, and I can tell you having been a Catholic, it's not helpful. You know what's helpful is when someone comes to you and they say, hey, look, I see how much you want to love the Lord, and I see how much you want to serve your fellow man, and that's awesome. And then let's talk as reasonable human beings, and let's just go through these things. Church history can be an amazing apologetic tool, and not a tool to beat people up. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a reformed against the reformed, uh, in the sense of I think a lot of the young guys, like it's just about let's beat people into being reformed like you know once once we show them on a piece of paper one time if they don't get it we'll just it, which is a very unreformed thing right because god has to be the one to change the heart but i think that the um if you actually look at your your catholic friends or family members if you look at them as people created in the image of god as people that want to love god and want to serve him then I think you can take church history not as a polemical tool, but as an apologetic tool along with the Bible and, and, and present it to them in a way that I think is loving. And at the end of the day, I, I firmly believe, you know, have, have people been saved by the fire and brimstone? Yes, right? Do we need to know about the fire and brimstone? Yes. But at the end of the day, people especially want to be, they want to be treated like people. They want to be tre treated as more than just an idea. And I think if you come to people in love and you actually know what you're talking about, uh, you will have a lot more maybe success than if you've tried this before and you've just tried to, this, these are my top 10 arguments on why, you know, the Pope is the Antichrist and Catholicism is the devil. Like, I just don't think, and to be honest, I don't think it's the way that Christ would want us sharing the gospel uh, with these people either. They, they, they have a desire. They want to know Jesus. And like we said, their doctrine of God, like they, yeah. they the, the Trinity and all, like there's so much there. It's not like you're trying to work with a, a Mormon or something that has a completely different foundation. At the end of the day, the foundation is the Trinity. They love the Trinity. I love the Trinity. Um, use that as a way in. Uh, I just think that, tr and then also as Protestants, let's not just think that nothing matters from, you know, 90 AD to 15 to 1517. Let's actually acknowledge that, just like the Reformers did, that there is a lot of good theology throughout church history. God has raised up men and women in every generation, and I do mean that in every generation, that believe him and love him. 
have all of them been 100% right? No, because none of us is 100% right. You'll read things in Anselm that are great and things that you're like, man, you really got that wrong. But you know what? People are going to say that about us yeah. 100 years from now. Most of them aren't going to wait 100 years. So I just think I just think I actually really enjoy engaging with with Catholics having having come out of Catholicism, not raised in it, but I actually became a Catholic in high school. I really think that church history is fascinating. It's fun to learn about. And you, we can actually use these things to say, because at the end of the day, you have to get to the point where who, what what authority is supreme. Right. I think one of the helpful things is showing like over time where authority comes from and how people have disagreed with that authority. So I would just I would just encourage people to actually talk with their Catholic friends and family, talk, not yell. And in order to do that, you're going to have to pick up a book you, and you're going to have to know you something. You we shouldn't look like this really angry uh, fundamental Baptist on this picture of this book here? That book looks like it was made in 1984 <laughs> on a laser printer, man. I appreciate that, that you said all of that, and those are such encouraging words. And could you, for our listeners and for us as well, just if you, uh, you know, our common ground with anyone who is a follower of Christ is the gospel, would you please uh, give us a... Uh, a brief presentation of the gospel uh, oh, for some of our listeners. <clears throat> well, I mean, I would say, I would break it down and say, look, it, God created everything and everything was good. Man, by his own sinfulness in the garden, right, chose the, um, when his will was neutral, basically chose to usurp God's authority or to be like God, right? And as a result, through all of the creation into sin, Right, this sin we're incapable of redeeming ourselves. Right, we're already in debt. We're already in the hole. We have, we have nothing to offer. Right, in the medieval period, there was this idea that you do ten percent of the good things you're supposed to do because we know you can't do one hundred percent. You do ten percent, and then God, like a good philanthropist, will come and give you the other ninety percent. I think what we learn from history, from scripture, if we, if we actually look at, examine our lives ourselves, we have nothing to offer God. Maybe maybe we think we have things to offer our wife or our husband, our kids, our parents, but we have nothing to offer God. Everything we can offer God, he created, right? I mean, that's it's craziness. God, take this thing that you already made. That's not even mine. And so we have 0% to give, but God in his love sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross for a people, right? His people that he calls by name and gives us 100% in the courtroom, in the courtroom of our life when God says guilty, guilty, guilty. When God asks you, how do you plead? And you plead guilty, guilty, guilty. Christ stands in that breach, right? And he takes that guilty verdict for you. And not only did he die, die for us, but was raised for us. And he constantly, Hebrews tells us, he constantly daily intercedes. How amazing is that? That God the Son Every single moment stands before the Father and pleads the merits of his blood for someone like me who is so utterly undeserving of that and that he will come again in power and glory uh, you know, to wrap up the whole show, right? And his kingdom will have no end. And that, if you, and that the only thing that's incumbent on any of that, you have nothing to give. All you have to do is take. All you have to do is take. And what do we do? We take Christ by faith. And what an amazing thing that is, so... I would just encourage if there are people here that are interested that have not placed that faith in Christ, uh, I would just say, I would say, come, all who are, you know, labor and are heavy laden, Christ will give you rest. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son. He will glorify them. Um, and just what an amazing thing that we don't have to live in a system predicated on, yes, we are guilty, but we don't have to earn it. Mm. 
we can't earn it. Like it's an it's it's an it's an acknowledgement of weakness that leads to strength, and that strength is not our own strength; it's Christ's strength. Because in His, in our weakness, His strength is perfected. So, Amen. excellent. God be the glory. Yes, Amen to that, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.